You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. And you are on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And wherever you are, self-isolating at home, maybe working from home, or even out for your exercise, it's great to have you with us. I'm Judith Peppard, and in the midst of this feeling of life on hold, I'm bringing you stories that concerned us before the coronavirus came to town, stories that percolate away just under the surface. They're still there, and in some respects are changing while the coronavirus runs its course. Now, last year, the world looked on with dismay as tensions between the U.S. and Iran escalated. Central to this was the U.S. withdrawal from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action nuclear deal in May 2018, resulting in the reimposition of sanctions on Iran, and also the U.S. increased its military presence in the region. In June last year, the world held its breath when the U.S. President Donald Trump approved military strikes on Iran in response to the downing of an American surveillance drone and heaved a sigh of relief when he pulled back from launching those attacks at the last minute. In Australia, these events raised concerns about how Australia would be affected if a war broke out between the U.S. and Iran and how we would be positioned in that. In order to find out more, I had the great privilege of speaking with Professor Richard Tanter a senior research associate with the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability and an honorary professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Professor Taunter has written extensively about the U.S.-Australian alliance and particularly about Pine Gap, the joint defence facility, about 20 kilometres from Alice Springs. I began our conversation by asking Richard Taunter about the establishment of Pine Gap. Well, Pine Gap has been there now for more than half a century. That's older than uh, many of our listeners, I think, will be. It's been around for a very long time. It's an extraordinary United States intelligence base. It's probably the biggest outside the United States itself. It's formerly a joint Australian-United States uh, facility. It was built by the United States. It operates as a ground station for giant American satellites in space. It's paid for primarily by the United States. Australia now has roughly equal numbers of people working there to the United States, but it's better probably thought of as an American base to which we have some access. It's a set of very big ears for space-based interception of transmissions from other countries, some of them our allies, and it also has big infrared eyes, satellites in space, which pick up the, the heat bloom of the launch of missiles. It's incredibly important to the United States. I'm wondering how much Australians actually know about Pine Gap. That's a really good question to ask. I actually think that Australians know a lot in the sense they all know Pine Gap's there, but it's rather like a sort of dirty little secret at the back of our minds. Many Australians think of Uluru as the centre of our country, and I think that's a very good thing. Other people think of Pine Gap as the centre of our country and they mean that in a good way, that this is the assurance that the American alliance is robust, the Americans will protect us, uh, she'll be right. It's ugly, it's nasty, but Richard, it will save us. 
So I think at that level, many people do know about Pine Gap, and many people I speak to in your profession start out talking about Pine Gap in positive ways, but then get to the end point of saying, doesn't that mean that Pine Gap might be a nuclear target? And indeed, it was undoubtedly during the Cold War, and the Defence Department knew it. Officials such as uh, the Foreign Minister and the Prime Minister and the Hawke government admitted this. I think the Defence Department knows it still is a prime nuclear target in the event of war, in particular between the United States and Russia. At a lower level of priority, a war between the United States and China, only because the Chinese do not have as many missiles as the Russians. Why is it a target? It's a target for two reasons. One is those infrared eyes, the satellites with the big infrared telescopes down linking to Pine Gap, they give the United States warning of the launch of an enemy missile attack, giving the United States president the proverbial 15 minutes to decide how the rest of the world is going to go to Armageddon. What's often not said is that that same technology then allows the United States to work out which missile silos have fired and which ones remain to be fired and therefore become prime targets in their own right. In other words, Pine Gap's an important part of nuclear post-attack targeting, as it's called in the, the military. That's the first reason. And so if Australia joins the US in a war, or maybe even if it doesn't join, it's likely that the opposing country is going to want to make sure that information will not get to the United States. That's exactly right. Destroying Pine Gap is one way of at least reducing that capacity. Now you wouldn't be wanting to live in Alice Springs then? You certainly wouldn't. Alice Springs would be an appalling uh, nuclear sacrifice zone in the event of an attack on Pine Gap. The other reason why Pine Gap is, as the military talk about it, a lucrative target for China or Russia is that the main part of the base, the signals intelligence, the big ears that are listening to phones, radio communications, radars and so on, these play an enormously important role in the command and control of nuclear forces and also of conventional forces. For that reason, also, Pine Gap is, was and still would be, I believe, uh, a fairly high-priority nuclear target. For those reasons, Pine Gap also plays a role in American global military operations, in both the infrared eyes part, if you like, and the big ears. The big ears are listening, we know famously, to people who are suspected of terrorism and may well be terrorists, using their phones in war zones in Afghanistan, Iraq, but also in areas in countries which neither the United States nor Australia is at war. Pakistan, Ethiopia, Sudan, Yemen. If you've just joined us on 3CR, I'm speaking with Professor Richard Tanter who spoke to us on Monday breakfast in June 2019 to explain the role of Pine Gap, the U.S. intelligence gathering operation just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs. I asked Richard whether Pine Gap would be already playing a role in the surveillance of Iran, given the recent developments. I have no doubt it is doing so right now. Pine Gap would have every week and every day a kind of tasking schedule. What are we doing today? What are the satellites going to be pointed at? For a long time, Pine Gap and its companion station in Britain, Menwith Hill, working together, are concentrating on what the military would call the electronic order of battle for Iran. Where are their radars? How capable are they? How can they be jammed? Where are the communications of their high command and their regional command, their battalion-level commands? Can we find them? In current war, if you can find it, you can destroy it. 
the destruction part is not really something that the Americans have to worry about in that appalling rationality. So when um, Donald Trump was saying they had three sites they were going to attack in Iran, I think it was just a week, a week and a half ago, would some of that information about those sites have been provided by Pine Gap? I've no doubt that Pine Gap was collecting information that led to the selection of those targets. Again, sharing it with Menworth Hill, it's a system as a whole, but Pine Gap is very closely involved. That's exactly what it's designed to do now. If war does occur between the US and Iran, if hostilities break out, and we're all hoping that never happens, if Australia decides not to join the US in this venture, would Pine Gap still be in use around it? In pragmatic terms, I'd say undoubtedly it would. We are hardwired into these kind of uh, operations. The Australian government, all Australian governments, have always said since the Hawke era that Pine Gap operates with the full knowledge and concurrence of the Australian government. They say that doesn't mean we agree with everything that goes on there, but we agree with the mission descriptions. What that raises is the question of whether an Australian government would ever have the spine to say to the United States, well, we do not concur in its use for this operation and we wish you to give an assurance that Pine Gap will not be used in relation to, say, a war in Iran. Even if the Australian government said that, is it even possible to extricate Pine Gap from those operations? It technically would be possible if Australia knew enough about it, but eventually it would come down to pulling the plug. Whether that's technically possible, I don't know. What it really means is there would be challenging the deepest aspect of the Australian alliance with the United States. It's technically integrated into the US global command and control system, nuclear and non-nuclear. Australians work at Pine Gap. Australians work in the companion stations in the United States. We are very closely integrated. There are careers in the Australian Defence Force built around those sort of connections. We talk about whether Australia knows what happens at Pine Gap. One of the key questions I think we have to ask is whether senior Australian politicians actually understand what goes on at Pine Gap. They get briefings, they get tours. Do they actually understand that, in, for example, in the event of war with Iran by the United States, we will be drawn into it technologically and we would have to work to get out of it and it's not clear that we could do so. Moreover, it's a bit more complicated again. It's not just a matter of those big ears are not just on Pine Gap and the big infrared eyes are not just from Pine Gap or its satellites. There are other intelligence platforms like large aircraft about the size of a 727 owned by the United States and Australia. We sent them to Iraq and to go over Syria. These systems connect to each other. They all produce the kind of targeting uh, information that enables the destruction of an Iranian air capacity, for example, air defence capacity. That's much more important than sending troops in military terms. That's why the United States likes Australia, why they like Australia buying this equipment, why they like Australia being integrated into the, not just in Pine Gap, but the communications, the military communication systems on which all of this American military power to destroy an, an enemy depends. We're plugged in. Professor Richard Tander, a senior research associate with the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability and an honorary professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. You're on 3CR Community Radio and it's great to have your company. We'll hear more from Richard Tanter on the US-Australia alliance in a moment, but first of all, some messages. (laughs) 
So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. You are on 3CR. I'm Judith Peppard and I've been speaking with Professor Richard Tanter about the US-Australia alliance. And I was interested in hearing more about some prominent people who've been critical of that alliance. In particular, former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, who published Dangerous Allies in 2014. Malcolm Fraser was very clear about this. He said Australian politicians are not taking responsibility for their actions. He argued that it was desirable for an Australian government under some circumstances to cooperate with the United States and others not. I'm fairly sure he would have considered Donald Trump in the not category. He would have said that the language of full knowledge and concurrence the Australian government uses with respect to the joint facilities, not just Pine Gap but others, is far too abstract, far too general. He would have wanted a very clear statement that we could pull the plug and if the United States couldn't give us that assurance, then we should not host facilities like that. And he was particularly concerned about it in the case of Pine Gap's contribution to the targeting of drone assassinations, which he quite rightly argued were illegal under international law. Sooner or later, he knew, somebody would be charged with war crimes in Australia about that. He said politicians should and can get much more closely involved with these decisions. And once they do, they need to take responsibility to the Australian people. And how is it looking at the moment to you with the current government? There's a lot of talk in Canberra of Trump being different. But of course, in many respects, Trump is not the problem. Nuclear normal is the problem. Trump's erratic behaviour, his institution busting, is destabilising, and that's actually not a good idea when nuclear weapons are around. But in general, we have hawks like uh, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo driving the bus in the United States at the moment. Paradoxically, Trump's decision not to proceed with a strike brings him out on the good side of things, at least momentarily. I think what's fundamentally important is for Australia to think out What are our interests? What do we really have an interest in? What is so threatening that it constitutes some part of an existential threat to Australia? Well, clearly Iran is not part of that. We may have a problem if, uh, as a result of this war, if it happens, we may have an oil shortage, as Jim Molden points out. That's really not an existential issue. It's just pump more um, and raise the price. Really, Our interests in the Middle East are firstly to withdraw our troops from Iraq, complete our withdrawal of RAF aircraft participation in the Syria war, and also to have a balanced policy about nuclear issues in the Middle East, which means we should be very concerned if Iran does proceed further towards getting a nuclear weapon, we should be much more concerned about the fact that Israel probably has 80 to 100 
nuclear weapons, uh, which is not declared. The Australian government has not recognised them. And this is just the kind of bad faith that absolutely corrodes international trust. And what about Saudi Arabia getting nuclear weapons? The idea that the United States could allow Saudi Arabia to get the nuclear power plant, which would then allow them to build a nuclear weapon, this is insanity at a very high level. This is a government, which is not a government, it's a kingdom. We used to call them despotisms in the day of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I thought we'd done with all that sort of thing. Saudi Arabia is a government which is extremely repressive towards its own people, conducting a horrific war with the UAE in Yemen at the moment, probably the world's greatest humanitarian crisis ongoing at the moment. And we have this totally biased approach to Iran and Israel's nuclear weapons. That really is destructive in its own right. And Australia needs to think out who are we and what do we actually need. Professor Richard Tanter from the Nautilus Institute talking about Australia's defence policy and the alliance with the US and the possibility of us being dragged into wars in the future. The obvious next question was what does Australia need when it comes to defence policy? I think at a defence level we need a capacity to defend Australia. I think we have uh, real interests uh, in some inhibiting and defeating some terrorist activities very close to Australia. I think you do need intelligence agencies to think about those kinds of issues and gather appropriate information for it. However, I, what worries me is a presumption that Australian interests and American interests are always going to align automatically. China is now being built in the mainstream media as America's principal threat. Trump has a particular version of that, but it's much broader than Trump. China is a country which I would say is a danger to its own citizens in the sense of the massive repression there. It's certainly a danger to uh, territories which it claims as part of its own, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet. But Australia as a settler colonial country really can't talk quite so glibly about that. China is a country which has a long imperial tradition, longer than that of the United States, they're both imperial powers. American empire is an empire of bases and cultural influence. China doesn't have much of either at the moment. If I lived in Vietnam or uh, the Philippines, I would be a bit more wary about China than that. They clearly want a sphere of influence there. That doesn't add up to domination and hegemony. It's roughly the way the world works with a hierarchy of powers. And small countries have to decide how much they want to accommodate and how much they want to resist. We are a long way from that. I think Australians don't quite know who they are. We haven't really worked out what are the consequences for today of Australian foreign policy, not starting, say, in 1938 or 39 when we got our first embassies getting loose with the British. It really started in 1788 when Philip landed in Sydney and the frontier wars began and have never really stopped in that sense. I think that a foreign policy is in many respects a continuation of that. We are only comfortable with the Anglophone countries, not only whitefellow countries, but the ones that speak English. We have no idea to how to think about China. China is coming back to the position it's had in civilizational terms for more than two millennia of being the largest and greatest power in the world. Australia's founding as a colony, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, just happens to be the time when because of simultaneous pressure from the British and other powers, China became weakened for its first time uh, in its history. 
large parts of China were colonised. There was the most important part of the World War II in our part of the world was not the war between America and uh, Australia and Japan, it was the war between Japan and China, where some 20 million people died on the Chinese side of that. We don't have any notion of that. We have a huge cultural influence from the United States. It's very deep, very strong. We're only beginning to get any kind of acquaintance with China, and already we're making it into our biggest threat. We need to become more acquainted. We need to think carefully and realistically. But first of all, we have to look and learn, and we have to think about who we are. And working out who we are is so important. A big thank you to Professor Richard Tanter for so generously offering his time last year. Richard is a senior research associate with the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability and an honorary professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. You're on 3CR, 855 AM on your dial and streaming live. Here's Uncle Archie Roach with one of my favourite songs. Brings me uh, peace at the moment in these chaotic times. Take care wherever you are. Stay well. Uncle Archie Roach with Dancing With My Spirit. I'm dancing with my spirit. Yeah. I am dancing with my spirit. And 
As we all gear up for social distancing, staying at home, washing our hands regularly to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, I wondered how people who were experiencing homelessness were faring in the midst of this crisis that continues to unfold. Greg Denham represents LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, here in Melbourne. He's been involved in health promotion and prevention in the alcohol and other drug field for many years, from policing, HIV, education, policy, advocacy work, and more recently, street work. So I thought he'd be a perfect person to speak to, to find out what's been happening. So I began by asking Greg Denham what this all means for people who are homeless. You know, we talk about self-isolating, but for many people that's just not a possibility. Many people, particularly the ones I've uh, got to know over the last 10 years working in the city of Yarra and the city and other places, can't self-isolate. They don't have a place to live for a start. They don't have many options when it comes to places to stay. So they may be sleeping around, they may be sleeping rough, they may just be opportunistic sleepers, they may be sleeping in the street. So... Many of them have significant and chronic drug and alcohol dependency issues, and so therefore they're still using drugs. The whole notion of um, self-isolating and uh, 
taking precautionary measures like washing hands and this type of thing is just far beyond the realms of possibility for many people. I know that there are some accommodation options, um, often not ideal. Are those places, you know, putting in place the practices to prevent transmission of the virus? We're still um, in a situation where many of those places are difficult to get into. They are attempting to implement some procedures around hand washing, that type of thing. But for many people that are street-based, getting into a place to stay is is a challenge in itself. One of the difficulties that many face is that often these um, these accommodation places have very strict rules around uh, people can't use drugs or alcohol or be affected by drugs or alcohol. So they're immediately eliminated from uh, being able to use those facilities. It's just one of those issues that we have um, faced for a long time is that many programs don't respond effectively to people who use drugs. So, Greg, what resources are available to people who are sleeping rough or on the streets, don't have stable accommodation? What can they do? What are they doing? That's a really good question because over the last uh, week or so, Several of those agencies that do provide support to people who are sleeping rough, you know, many of them actually have closed or restricted their hours of service. You know, day by day we're seeing agencies affected themselves by the policies that are being introduced. People who work there may be being affected or maybe um, coming from overseas or maybe exposed to COVID-19. We are now seeing those agencies that are there to support people closing their doors. The agencies that are remaining open have more and more pressure on them to support more and more people who can't go to other places. So it's unfortunate and it's a real risk, I think, that many people who probably have increased risk of being infected with this virus can't get into a support agency. Some of them are just out of prison, just being released. And in my experience with the HIV issue overseas and, and TB, is that uh, prisons are a breeding ground for viruses and we don't know, obviously, how many people may be affected by COVID-19 in prisons, but it would be astonishing if there wasn't. And uh, if that's the case, then it's likely to spread very, very quickly within the prison system and then people will, will be released out to the community. I think there's been some really important initiatives recently, some parts of the United States, and I heard recently in Australia, that people who are maybe subjected to a prison term for a uh, relatively minor offence aren't being sentenced, which I think is a great idea. I think we need to stop putting people in prisons at this stage and look at ways in which we can support them in the community. Has the government, either state or federal, taken any action uh, to support or protect uh, people who are homeless or people who are in prison? What action, if any, has been taken? Well, I'm not aware of any at this stage. Um, it's very difficult to find out what's going on in prisons in Victoria because um, governments do not tend to uh, provide open communication around what sort of services are being delivered. And, of course, many of them are privately run. So we, we are guessing, really, in terms of what might be delivered in health and welfare programs. So, so, so we're just in the dark, really. We just don't know. Yeah, we are in the dark. But we do need to know what's going on. And it's really important that we have open communication about what health services, what um, additional risks for people who are um, incarcerated and being released. So prisons can be a breeding ground. And once a person becomes infected and they're released into the community, then that's um, an added risk for um, you know the community. So we need to identify any risks and, and deal with them. Yes, and certainly, you know, people need to be tested if they're coming out of prison, I would think. Of course, yes. Yeah. 
But what about for people who are homeless, though? Are there any additional resources being made available to workers who work in the street or the people who they see? Anything happening there? My understanding is, is that there's going to be additional resources uh, put towards housing, which is great. Now, where that housing is and what type of housing it is, we're not sure about it. The workers and a lot of people involved in that direct service delivery are finding a kind of a pressure cook environment at the moment. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are quite stressed. It's a stressful uh, situation most of the time without having this virus in the community. But a lot of workers are now starting to recognise that amongst the clients there's an additional level of stress and anxiety. And I think a lot of that is to do with you know, a number of services restricting their hours or closing their doors. So it means that if there's stress and anxiety, there's a potential for increased risk of violence. And that, of course, brings the police in. And then if the police get involved, there's a good chance that someone might be arrested. And so the process goes on and on and on and on. You know, I think we need to start pouring money into dealing with the people that are most at risk so that we can look at some early intervention and primary prevention programs to ensure that those people are safe, but also the rest of the community isn't impacted as well. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Greg Denham from Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, and he's telling me about the situation facing both street workers and people living on the streets in relation to the kind of practices they have to put into place to prevent transmission of the coronavirus. I was wondering what education and resources were being provided for people who are homeless and those who work with them. Ensuring that there's reduced risk of infection, and that includes things like hand-washing regularly, you know, not touching your face, and all that sort of basic information that the government's providing at the moment is being reinforced and there's been a lot of communication to agencies around how their staff can protect themselves if messages are being conveyed. What's getting through to people on the streets? If they're on the streets, they're difficult to engage at the best of times and many of them can't get access to agencies because, you know, they've had difficulties in the past. You know, they're often um, marginalised, they're often stigmatised and discriminated against. And I imagine they're afraid. Of course they're afraid, that's right, exactly. They have often have difficulties understanding what the issues are and those basic recommendations in terms of preventing um, the virus spreading. So they go into an agency and they go into a drop-in centre or, or that type of program that does specifically work with that particular group. Then certainly they will get information when they attend to that agency. But as I said before, some of those agencies are closing down. Every day there's a, an agency or two that are unable to operate any longer because of a variety of reasons to do with this particular virus. So they have to engage with an agency most of the time or they have to be working directly with a worker who can pass on that information. But they're very under-resourced. For many people that are street-based, they don't have the resources, they don't have the knowledge. Even access to that knowledge, you know, through radio or television. Many of the workers out there are doing the best they can to convey that information. The people that the agency staff work with don't watch TV, who don't have a radio. Many of them don't even have a phone. They don't engage or communicate with uh, mainstream uh, media services. So they're often quite ignorant of what messages are being conveyed on a whole range of issues, not just COVID-19. What needs to happen? What does the government need to do? We need to ensure that we maintain the current level of services. We need to ensure that we provide um, basic resources, such as sterile hand wash, disinfectants, engaging street-based people around um, looking at accommodation, providing accommodation, provide support through GPs. One of the strengths of the HIV campaign was to engage with groups of people 
who were most at risk. People who are living on the streets or in a rough will have particularly important information. I mean, they will know where they go for, you know, to use the toilet, I guess, showers, if that's even available. They will know those places and, uh, and what might be done there. They will. It's very sparse on the ground. Anyway, regardless of whether this virus exists, there are a, there's a lack of resourcing around providing that type of support for people, whether it's in the city, whether it's in the inner city area. There's just not the resources available and we need to expand those resources. We need to provide opportunities for people to, to have a shower, to do their laundry, speak to um, a medical health professional. You know, we need to get those resources out there. We, we need to get them out there today. We need to provide these resources straight away. We can no longer turn our back on a particular group of people because they live a very different life than many others. We've got to understand that people who around the streets have significant chronic, not only drug and alcohol issues, but mental health issues. Often they have learning difficulties. Just listening to what you're saying now, even the ability to read for people who've had their education interrupted, we can't assume that people can even read printed information. Exactly. I work uh, quite a bit on the streets, have over the last 10 years. We can't assume that everyone can read, everyone can comprehend what we say, everybody has the ability to problem-solve issues. Because, quite frankly, many people can't. I spend a lot of time around North Richmond, um, Abbotsford. still see people out there who have multiple and complex needs which cause them significant health issues. And that can range from um, overdose, problems associated with injecting other types of infections, poor diet, poor teeth, inability to eat healthy food. You know, uh, online I was looking at something the other day and a doctor was recommending that, you know, you get plenty of sleep and you eat good food, fruit and vegetables. Well, I'm sorry, but many people who are on the street don't have the opportunity to eat that type of food or can't eat that food. Yeah. A lot of it is um, based around soft, fast food. When you start to talk about the health and medical conditions of people based on the street, it's just endless. Sight issues, hearing yeah. difficulties, many are carrying injuries from conflict, many are subjected to family violence. You know, just the list just goes on and on and on. Well, Greg, I won't keep you. You had a busy morning already. Oh, actually, this is my first day off for about six days, just trying to busily do a little bit of shopping and still fascinated by the uh, trips to the supermarket to see the empty shelves. So I think we'll have to put up with that for a little bit longer. But anyway, um, it's interesting time. It Very is. And thank you so much. No, thank you. And a big thank you to Greg Denham for making time to speak to us here at 3CR on his day off. G'day, I'm Janine and I'm a koala researcher. Koalas have had a tough year and so have we. We need some good news and they need some attention. The 3rd of May is Wild Koala Day. Share a picture of a koala on your social media, wear a gum leaf on your shirt and tag Wild Koala Day. Go to wildkoaladay.com.au for more ideas of how you can help koalas from home. A 3CR supporter. Hi. These are weird days. Many of my days are weird days, actually, but these are weirder than most. It can be a bit of a seismic shock to wake to the news of daily tolls here and in other countries. To spend week after week separated from friends and family, hour on hour, of many of us just within our own homes. But through all of this, we are also seeing so much to inspire hope. People are creating incredible networks of mutual aid. Gardens are thriving from all that lockdown attention. 
We are finding new ways to slow, connect and reflect. Artists are creating, kids are learning differently and activists are imagining and collaborating on new futures beyond this time. And 3CR is continuing to broadcast throughout this coronavirus remotely. Who knows how long this will have us all locked down, but don't let it get you down. Tune in and love up your community. Stay connected. Work for what has to be a better future ahead. Thanks, CR, for staying steady on the waves. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. We hope you're enjoying today's remote broadcast. My name's Alice, and I'm going to be speaking to La Mama's CEO, Liz Jones. Following cuts to the Australia Council, some of Australia's most important art organisations have lost their federal funding. On Friday the 3rd of April, Melbourne's beloved La Mama Theatre was one of those small to medium-sized theatres that has had their funding rejected. Today, I speak with La Mama's CEO and CEO, Liz Jones, with the plea to help save La Mama. I start by asking Liz, what is the history of La Mama and why has it been so significant in the community? La Mama was formed in 1967. It was formed to give Australian uh, playwrights, performers, artists, um, musicians, uh, poets, um, a voice in a, in, a, in, a, in a space where there appeared not to, not to be a, an outlet for voice. Betty Burstall had just come back from America and been so impressed by La Mama New York and other little off-off Broadway theatres, so she really wanted to set up um, yeah, such a space, and she did. Um, and it was instantly embraced by the community, um, by poets like Glenn Tomasetti and playwrights like Jack, Jack Hibbard. And it's really been functioning brilliantly since then. Uh, in 1971, um, it, there was an exciting breakthrough in that we got funding from the Australia Council to take a trip of the um, uh, La Mama Company, which became the APG, to Perth. And we've been funded by the Australia Council ever since. And we've grown, of course. We bought our building in 2008. Um, in 1998, we took over the Carlton Courthouse. We've served our community, I think, fairly tirelessly. We serve thousands of artists every year. We involve thousands of artists every year. And it's a space where people can come without any backup. You know, the people who people can come who, who living in their vans. People can come mm. because we fund, we've, we've always funded the work we've done. People have never had to scrabble around to fund the work they've done. And the 
box office is always gone uh, as much as possible in full, um, certainly at least 80% to the, the performers um, and creatives. Um, yes, yeah, so um, we, we, as I say, we bought La Mama in 2008, which was wonderful. But in 2018, 10 years later, very sadly, La Mama burnt, was gutted by mm. fire. And in 2019, we raised over $3.5 million to rebuild it from the philanthropic sector and the community sector and from government too, not the federal government, but certainly the state government. The federal government didn't help at all, I don't think. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then suddenly in 2020 we are defunded by the Australia Council who, who the, um, are 50% of our daily running funding, uh, of our management, mm. yeah, and, mm. and, and of what we fund in the arts sector. Mm. And did this this happened last Friday on the third of April, I believe, or was yes, it? Yes, that's right. April? Yes, no, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And was it a surprise? Oh, it was a, it was a shock. Mm. Um, my my poor um, co CEO and company manager Caitlin, when she rang me, she was actually in shock. She was in deep shock. Um, she was. Because it was so unexpected, we were told that we'd done a very good submission. We put in our expression of interest. We were told we'd done a very good submission, that it was in the top third percentile, and that, um, and and so I guess we we had actually hadn't ever thought we wouldn't be funded, um, you know. And um, and for Caitlin, it was a terrible shock. And I, and of course, in this COVID environment, in, in environment, it's so difficult because you know she was there in Trentham. I'm in Newport, she's very pregnant. I couldn't comfort her or hold her or tell her what a wonderful job she'd done. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it it was honestly devastating. Wow. I, I can only I can only imagine. And and was is this funding because of the current pandemic? Is that is that no, where these cuts no. are coming from? No, no, it's got nothing to do with the pandemic at all. No, it's got to do with the appalling lack of funding for the Australia Council. Mm. And um, this has been happening for a while. Oh yes, we, we've been, uh, the Australia Council's been in a state of funding attrition um, for a very long while particularly under the present government. Um, Brandis, as you know, Brandis um, took away a whole lot of funding from the Australia Council, which resulted in many, many companies being defunded, um, and we never got that back, and we never have got it. The Australia Council never has it back. So, you know, when the, you, you, you imagine this is the, the, the decision that the Australia Council has to make. They look at and they see, um, you know, there's three, four, five, six wonderful theatre companies in Victoria, um, Ilbidgery, Back to Back, Polyglot, La Mama, and they suddenly realise they've only got enough money to fund two of them. So all all but Ilbidgery and Back to Back were dropped. All of us were dropped on our heads. Oh, wow. I mean, it was terrible. You know, and and one does look and see that there were that other committees in the Australia Council were obviously better funded than the arts than the than theatre. You know, the multi arts managed to hang on to Arts House and Substation and and as they should have been and 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 um, you know Footscray, but they weren't given such a hideous choice as the poor theatre peer 
group who literally had to choose between those that I just, and St Martin's, all those that I just told you, all that deserved funding, all that expected funding and all that are deeply shocked not to get funding. And I'm sure those, the, the two back-to-back and, and Ilbidgery really feel for the rest of us because, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't defund our wonderful Indigenous Ilbidgery or our wonderful disabled you know, people for, with, with, with the challenges of back-to-back. And so the rest of us, we got nothing, nothing at all. Wow. And is that is that for until the until the next funding round where you can apply again, or does it mean you're picking up the pieces and you're trying to figure out on a day to day basis how how you're going to survive this? Yeah, we're picking it up. We have got we have got some funding to help us get through 2021. Um, I mean, we'll all we'll all, we'll be building in 2020 in this year mm. and into 2021. We will be in fairly straightened circumstances. Anyway, we have got um, some funding because uh, they've, they've given us um, the Australia Council have given us some money to tide us over. Um, but then we just face—I don't know what we face. We face, I guess, a wait of at least three or four years before we can possibly think of being refunded, unless. The Liberal Federal Party, in its infinite wisdom, decides to give some money to the Australia Council so they can fund us. Mm. They can do that easily, you know. They've already come. They've already come to the party and given money to the visual arts and music. It just think. It just seems at the moment to me like theatre's the poor, the poor second cousin that's been forgotten. Mm. And La Mama's been such a huge part in a huge part of Melbourne in its cultural scene. Um, and what happens to culture in Australia if these small to medium theatres and festivals and companies and clubs are completely decimated? Well, you see, it, it, in theatre, it just leaves the, the, the enormous flagship companies, the MTC mm. and the Malthouse and, and, you know, Sydney Theatre Company, Bill. We love them. We love them. But... That's not where your grassroots root, creator starts, you know. I mean, David Williamson started at La Mama. He didn't start at the MTC. Um, in fact, most, most of the, many, you know, Kate Blanchett started at La Mama, Damien Walsh Howling. You just, it just, um, Julia Zamiro, Judith Lucy, it goes on forever. People don't actually start at the top. I wonder if those pollies, the liberal pollies, realise that people actually, you know, they don't all leap from Melbourne grammar to stardom. Oh, my God, you can tell I'm angry. Yeah, and every right to be so as well. (laughs) Every right. And, and, And what can we do? Well, you can put pressure on the Liberal Party, the Liberal government, on your, on the federal, particularly federal. You see, the the, the state government have been brilliant. They have they've supported us all the way, and we're getting very supportive messages from them now. You need to put pressure on the Liberal, the Liberal uh, government um, and the federal government, and let them know that it's not just you know. The, this is unfortunately this is not part of co- of the COVID nineteen package. I guess uh, it, it sort of <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with it. They've chronically underfunded the Australia Council as long as they possibly could. Um, they've done everything when they get into power to dismantle it. Um, 
going right back, I mean, I've been involved with the Australia Council for a very long time and I have just watched it, watched it be bashed by the Liberal Party continually. I have no idea why because it seems to me it's, a, mm. it's, a, it's an, all, an immense organisation of integrity. It does its job extremely well. But um, So, look, yes, that's what, that's what we need to do. It's not huge funding, you know. It's nothing like these big packages um, where we're, we're the small to medium sector. We, we, we exist on a shoestring. Yeah. Um, but we do need a shoestring. Without the shoestring, we're done. Yeah, yeah. So, so do we need to get everyone needs to get onto their MPs, yep. find your local yep. Liberal MPs, mm. and just shout as loudly as we can please, to please, please to government. That, that's what I. That's what we'd love. That's what we're asking everyone to do. Um, and um, it, it, it's just also if you get onto our, um, our website, you'll see that there's also a survey that you can do, um, which will which will result in a petition. Yeah. So just if, yeah, but particularly write to your federal MP and let them know that this is happening. Because but in the, well, because in this these straightened times they possibly are unaware of it. It is a small issue um, but but when this is all over and people can go back to being creative and vibrant and really want an outlet for their poetry, their music, their their plays, their performances, their little companies, that's when they'll really notice that um, that, that, that the grassroots is gone. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on the dial. I'm Alice and I've just been speaking with La Mama's CEO, Liz Jones. La Mama was one of the innovative and legendary arts organisations that on the 3rd of April had its funding rejected. Please raise your voice and shout as loudly as possible to your local Liberal MPs. 3CR listeners have loud voices and we've used them very well over the years. So in dedication to La Mama and our activists at home yearning to shout as loudly as possible... Here's a piece of music by Fiona Carbo called Voice.
Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mulbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.